Welcome to Postscript, the subtext after show where we talk about things related and unrelated to the week's episode. This is Aaron Alonick. And this is Wes Allen. So we just got done talking about The Great Gatsby. How do you think that went? I think it went pretty well. I mean, there's always a lot more to say, unfortunately, and things that occur to me as I'm reading where I say to myself, got to mention that on the show and then probably I'll remember what those things are later. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I still think we got to a really good uh, you know, sampling. I thought it went well. I wasn't as over-prepared as I am sometimes. So, you know, listeners can give us feedback on on what they like, but we're trying to kind of figure out what works. So we're trying different approaches. So with this one, we decided to, we would start in media rays anywhere we liked, and we would roam about the text as we liked and not give too much synopsis, assume readers had read it and really talk less to the listener than to each other and let the listeners be eavesdroppers eavesdropping on the uh, eavesdroppers. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, eavesdropping on the conversation. And I like that. I think that works well. I hadn't thought through as many of the things that I wanted to think through as I have in some of the previous episodes, but I think that can work really well sometimes thinking out loud and not being too, or thinking in the moment and not being too wedded to my notes and to some agenda. I come away from an episode like this feeling like I've learned something from you and from from the whole process of being inspired with some thoughts and ideas as the episode goes on, which is which I like. Yeah, I like that too. I always learn something from you though, even if you have notes or whatever, you know. <laughs> Likewise. Unfortunately, Likewise. I, uh, yeah, I rely far too often on the strength of my own memory, which can be really good, but there is a, there is a limit to it. <laughs> so yeah, no, that's the thing. You, you do have a great memory and I think I'd have a better memory if I weren't. If I if you were more lazy like me and didn't do as much. <laughs> well, the more obsessional you get and the more detailed, you know, like me trying to outline chapters and it is actually better. I, I mean, I'm learning as we do this, like what the best way to prepare for these sorts of conversations is because we have a limited amount of time and the quality of the podcast relies on our spontaneity. You can't be completely spontaneous and unprepared. So it's really, it's... It's a hard balance. It's a hard balance. You know, you, you can kill some of the vitality, thinking back to Myrtle again, <laughs> you can kill some of the vitality by overthinking it. But yeah, if you're too spontaneous, then it's formless and you don't get a chance to really think through some of the things you might want to say right. um, about a book like this. There's so much to say. Well, like for instance, which it, it occurred to me after we had this kind of meta conversation while we were recording. I really wanted to talk more about the 1919 World Series. And then I was thinking, and then I was thinking, oh, I could just talk about that on the after show. That's what this is made yeah. for, <laughs> for me to talk baseball. So the thing that I love about Wolfsheim's character is that he's supposed to be Arnold Rothstein, who was a real guy who really did fix the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox scandal, where Cincinnati Reds overtook the highly favored Chicago White Sox, then christened the Black Sox afterwards. But anyway, I just, I love the fact that that is the association that Fitzgerald wants us to make with the kind of person that Wolfsheim is, because the 1919 scandal represented, I think, a kind of a loss of innocence similar to the Kennedy assassination. I mean, and I don't want to, mm. I don't want to overstate it, but this was the loss of innocence, I think, that led to the 20s in the way that the Kennedy assassination or maybe, you know, in 68, like the student riots and the RFK and Martin Luther King assassinations kind of led to the late 60s and 70s. So I think it's important maybe that during all of these kinds of like, I don't know, I have, I have a rough idea about this. I haven't really thought it through all the way, but the ways in which these eras of decadence are preceded by a loss of innocence 
is really important. So the Black Sox scandal really just kind of brought to light something that already existed in baseball for a long time, which is the idea of fixing things. The idea of gambling was actually part of baseball's culture from the beginning. But then once it became big business and there was this idea of, you know, making baseball this hallowed institution with American heroes like Shoeless Joe, who Babe Ruth uh, borrowed his batting stance from Shoeless Joe Jackson, who's considered, you know, the ultimate power hitter of his day. And and Ruth modeled his swing after uh, Shoeless Joe's. So this idea that when baseball was kind of overtaken by money and these magnates and this big business, that it was then somehow above reproach and it was invested with all of this, all of these spiritual qualities. I mean, some of which are inherent to the game of baseball because it's a beautiful game and everything else. But like once people realized that there was this sort of, you know, money-making opportunity, it became almost like Hollywood where suddenly we have to have uh, moral messages imbued in the movies and we have to make sure everything is quote unquote on the up and up. And really, of course, behind the scenes, it's just as rotten as it ever was. And then the, you know, the veil drops. Anyway, sorry, I have a, I just had that spiel trapped in my system and I needed to get it out. But anyway. No, that's, that's good. I, when I was looking into the background for this, I ended up pulling up a page, a Wikipedia page on Rothstein, right? You look at his life and then he was gunned down early on. It's, it's like a really kind of like a classic mobster <laughs> type of lifestyle. And I thought, wow, I got to read more about this guy. And then I scrolled down to see where he's been represented in film or TV. So I, I guess it was, have you seen Boardwalk Empire? Apparently he- I haven't. Okay. So I'm not sure how prominent a role he plays in that or what kind of role he plays in that. But anyway, yeah, it made me really want to learn more about what I thought was actually looking at his bio. I'm like, there's got to be a film, right? There's got Someone's got to have done a film about this guy. And so that's when I looked down to all that stuff. But the other thing that interested me in the background to this is just the extent to which it's based on Fitzgerald's own life and he lived on Long Island and the new money people were actually like writers and Hollywood people not Hollywood people but writers and film people like so Ring Lardner mm. who I thought yeah Aaron must know who that is because <laughs> I don't you know I've heard the name but he was a short story writer and apparently he was highly thought of by Hemingway and Fitzgerald and others. And somehow he got rich doing it. I don't know. <laughs> Ended up in that community. But Lou Fields, Ed Wynn. Yep. These are people I just don't really, you know, this, this is all new to me, all this stuff. So Well, Ring Lardner's expertise extended to baseball. And he was actually one of the, you know, his accounts of the Black Sox scandal were some of the most famous accounts. And he in particular felt really betrayed by that instance. But yeah, these were all personalities like, I don't know, uh, who would be the equivalent today? The only name I could think of is Maureen Dowd, though, you know, a columnist with a particular air about her or, or him, <laughs> as is always the case in, with Fitzgerald's friends, except for Zelda, with this particular panache, you know, writing for these top papers. It was really kind of like a golden age, the 20s, of the column as an art form, maybe. Interesting. And a lot of these prose stylists, like Damon Runyon, for instance, who wrote these popular stories, there was an appreciation for the effort and the flair that actually went into those. You're reminding me of the fact that the novel, I was surprised how contemporary the novel seems. Part of it is just like these sorts of, like a mob character like Wolfsheim is just, that's a contemporary trope as well. It's not dated in any way, even though we might associate it with a particular era. It's part of our cultural vocabulary. But otherwise, I was 
with all the cars zipping around, I thought, okay, I want to see, you know, and they're going over the bridge. What uh, I think it's, is it the Queensboro bridge that they go over at one point? I wanted to see, all right, well, what are cars? I'm thinking, is it still Model T Ford stuff or is it more advanced? But no, it's, you know, so it's cars look quite different by 1922. And, and I thought, and they're talking about going to the movies or just reading the background, I was kind of thinking, God, it's amazing that people were getting famous for being in movies, right? Before there was even sound, or is there sound at this point? Oh, absolutely. And this was a hundred years ago. I'm just thinking, and yet the way the characters talk about all of this stuff, it just, it has the same quality as the way we would talk about it today. And then New York, what the kind of feelings that New York inspires, you know, there's that great scene going over the bridge where he describes that. Unfortunately, we didn't get to it on the regular podcast, but everything feels contemporary to me. It doesn't actually feel dated, even though the novel and the films based on it, right, are the novels in a way a period novel and any adaptation of it will play that up. It feels so surprisingly contemporary. It's important to know that, too, that, um, I mean, early, early Hollywood, the silence, people like Charlie Chaplin and Mabel Normand and all those all those great figures. Early Hollywood was not Hollywood. It was it was New York City. You know, it was an outgrowth of Broadway. There were a lot of studios in not a lot of mm. studios, but there was, you know, there was movie making going on in New York. Interesting. So I didn't know that. Yeah. And then eventually it became, you know, transported to a place where you could have backlots with better weather and, you know, um, more controlled uh, environment. But yeah, you know, it's funny too, like I was thinking about, so one of the things I, I really hate about modern day Hollywood is just the nepotism inherent in mm. so much of it, how so many of our young actors today are actors by right of birth. So it's interesting now how that Hollywood people maybe now are considered like old money. I mean, you know, there's no grander name <laughs> than Barrymore in, you know, among the Hollywood elites. And, you know, so I just, I wonder how long it's going to take for Drew Barrymore's kids to get into acting or uh, whoever. So it's it's interesting too how, you know, just by having a certain staying power, like I wonder if all these East Eggers are, you know, kind of rolling in their graves over the fact that now the most exclusive parts of the Hamptons have been taken over by the younger generations who would have been West Eggers, all of these Hollywood people, the Gwyneth Paltrow's, you know, people are always surprised to know that Gwyneth Paltrow is the daughter of a movie star in her own right, Blythe Danner. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, they all come from storied backgrounds. Just to say that our perception of old money or of that kind of aristocratic heritage really does uh, change over time. Yeah. So I'm looking at a comment on Patreon by Frank on our postscript second coming Okay. postscript. And he says he loves the idea of rotating between essays, film, poems, and narrative literature. And then he talks about Marilyn Robinson having some essays. And I've always been a big fan of Marilyn Robinson. Oh, Robinson. me too. I don't know about you. Yeah. So The Death of Adam. I'm, have you read that, mm -hmm. that book and those essays? Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. So yeah, that will go on the list. That's a good idea. I think I, think I put her name on the list, but it's good to be reminded. Like when I was just brainstorming what essayists we would read. I mean, we could read a novel of hers as well, too of course. Yeah, yeah. And we do have some new patrons to thank. Elizabeth, Michael, Mary, and Amour. Amour has a Cupid as a profile. Oh, <laughs> Picture. <laughs> That's great. Could be Cupid himself. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so for our next episode, what are we doing next? I don't know. That's a good question. All right, let's find out. I'm already bound to a spreadsheet. It's not really up to me anymore. <laughs> it's up to the spreadsheet. <laughs> I guess we have some choice in this. Let's look at some of the possibilities here. Possibly a streetcar named Desire. Mm, mm, no? Eh. Why not? 
Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, eventually. I don't know if I could take that so much Americanness in that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, there's Billy Budd, Annie Hall, Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. Oh, you know what I was thinking though? Or Ibsen's Head of Gabbler. Yeah, oh, right, right. Maybe we want to do, maybe we want to stick to things that are more mainstream, like you said, for the first ones. But I was thinking uh, Woman Under the Influence. Yeah, maybe we could do that. I don't think it matters. I don't... Are you sure? Because I, I want to give us as much of a chance as possible, you know. I think we should throw in, you know. Wild card? Off the beaten path stuff. Okay. Once in a while, even in the beginning. And uh, yeah, because that's been on my mind. So we should just do that next. I know. Well, you know, it's just, it's one of those things like you think you're getting Mexican food. Someone suggests Chinese food and then you just have to think about Chinese food for a second. Then you're in the mood for Chinese food. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I could I could adjust elsewhere, but since I just listened to our postscript episode where we mentioned that, I thought that was like the Mexican food that's on the brain now, okay, or the Greek food, as the case may be, for Cassavetes. Ah, uh, yes. So, all right, good, great. So let's do that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, once again, thank you. Thank you.